what causes you to relax? Now, maybe for some of you, immediately, there's a scene on a beach somewhere. Some others might have a, a simpler dream of being in an easy chair with a bowl full of ice cream. Maybe it's a good movie, binging a show. Or maybe it's just a nice dose of NyQuil. But what I'm asking is what really makes you relax. For example, if you have a sick child at home, when do you relax? Is it when the fever breaks? When they start acting normal? Or when they stop waking you up in the middle of the night? When in, a race, when in a relationship do you relax? The old joke is that after marriage, men stop trying. Well, we relax. We're pretty certain now that you like us. But that's the case, isn't it? In romantic relations, as soon as it's all out, as soon as she checks the box, the box yes, we kind of start to re- relax. Or maybe if I came from a different direction. When's the last time you sat down, crawled into bed, got up into a hunting blind, and your mind didn't run to a doctor's appointment for later? Your mind didn't run to wedding plans, a test on Tuesday, field trips, didn't run to the last time your child had a meltdown. When's the last time you sat down and the soundtrack from Frozen wasn't playing in your head? Because they keep playing it over and over and over. When's the last time you stopped and you weren't worried? You weren't anxious. You weren't afraid. You weren't troubled. You weren't hurried. You weren't stressed. When's the last time? I ask you that because our text this morning tells us as as Christians, we have entered God's rest. Now, all of us want rest, not just the rest in peace kind of rest. We want rest in this life. By rest, what we're really trying to say is to be untroubled in our soul. Mom says it from time to time. Just give me a moment of peace. Rest doesn't mean the absence of work. Doesn't mean you don't have any responsibilities. It's not an escape from reality. It's the simple state of being untroubled. Having rest or being untroubled is described in the Bible as something that should come as a byproduct of salvation. Jesus is going to claim in this passage that rest ultimately comes from a relationship with him. As I announced last week, this week we return to the book of Matthew. Now, this is our third year in the book. I told you it would take us four years. I'm here to announce that, that I was a liar. The reason for that is I'm pretty sure we are not going to get very far or much past these five verses. The reason for that is that these five verses have represented for me 
an incredible source of help and renewal during the times in which we have lived. If there's ever been a moment you have looked at me in the last six months and said, he doesn't seem to be bothered. I can tell you it wasn't me. It was the fact that I was standing on the truths that we find in these five verses. So my desire this time around in the book of Matthew is hopefully share with you why that has been the case or how that has been the case. But since it's been a year, let me remind you of a few things. Matthew is quite simple in its theme. We have a king and his kingdom. Book opens with a genealogy for a king. We have wise men come to give gifts intended for a king. We have the majority of the book where there is this repeated phrase, the kingdom of God. At the end of the book, the king says to his subjects, all authority I have now to send you to spread my kingdom. In chapter 10, we looked at last year how Jesus began to prepare his disciples to go out and to share this good news, the kingdom of God is near. But he warns them that they're going to run into all sorts of pushback, all sorts of unbelief. Now, after he sends them along the way, we come to chapter 11, and Jesus begins to go back through villages and cities in which they have just ministered. And the question that keeps coming up is, is Jesus the Christ? And in response to that question, Jesus starts laying out all of the evidence that, in fact, he is the Christ. And then begins to rebuke those who refuse to believe the evidence. With the apex of that moment coming with these three cities, where he rebukes these people who heard the most of his teaching, who were around him when he lived most of his life, And according to the text, saw the majority of his most majestic miracles, yet they didn't believe. After openly and publicly rebuking them, the tone of the text changes dramatically in verse 25. Think about it, he has openly and publicly said, the vast majority of the people in these three cities are going to go to hell. And then turns, starting in verse 25, to extend an invitation to rest. And that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time, this invitation to rest. And I think we need to start this this journey by looking at a simple idea. Five times in these five verses, Jesus refers to God as my Father. So this morning, if you are taking notes, here's the first thing I would write down. I can rest because God is my Father. I can rest because God is my Father. Number, uh, i got three points for you. Number one, my Father is Lord of heaven and earth. Now that you see that phrase there, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. The Bible addresses God several times this way. It's a name that really just indicates the one who has control. The Bible's filled with different names for God. The God who sees. The God who provides. 
the God who is all-powerful, each of them describing something about God. And so we see in this prayer that Jesus prays that he's thanking the Father for out of the extension of the fact that God is the God of control. He is the sovereign of creation. We could go all the way back to the book of Job and be reminded that this is how God responded to Job's questions. He says to Job, I am the Lord of all that has been created. He says to Job, I am the God who attends the birth of every deer. I am the God of your troubles, Job. Or we go to Asaph in Psalm 73. He looked out into the world and his thought was, you know what? It seems as though the evil that evil people prosper and the righteous suffer. From his point of view, it seems like evil's constantly making these new converts, whereas the people of God continue to fail. But then Asaph reminds himself, my God is the Lord of heaven and earth. And from there, he realizes all God is doing is fattening the pigs for the day of butchering. But I want you to note one more thing here in verse 25. Jesus' prayer is described as his answering or declaring. In other words, he's he's responding to something. And what it is, is is a response to what has just been made clear. You see these, as I said, these places of his most intense ministry contain the fewest believers. By all indications, then, his ministry has been... A failure. But Jesus doesn't scoff at this. In fact, we know from Scripture that he was grieved by it. What Jesus is responding to is the depression of the soul. And that response is this. I thank you that you are the Lord of heaven and earth. He is declaring a confidence that the Lord of heaven and earth will use this for his glory. Jesus is saying the fact that God is in control means that nothing prevents the accomplishment of his purposes. You see, the fact that our Father is Lord of heaven and earth is why we say to people, God is in control. Somebody is diagnosed with cancer, and one of the things we're going to say to them is, God is in control. Somebody's wedding plans get moved around because of the pandemic, and we will go and put our arm around them, and we will say, God is in control. In November, the day after the election, we will come to church, and if somebody gets elected that perhaps you did not prefer get elected, we can put our arms around each other, and we can say to one another, God is in control. Now my hope is that we don't say that to each other with the idea that God is in control, so it's all going to work out the way we hope. Instead, I hope that we say that to each other, saying that God is in control, so even this will not prevent the accomplishment of his purposes. God's control is completely effective means that what he wants to have happen, happens. And it is universal, meaning it is effective everywhere. 
There is no black hole for you to enter into where God is not Lord of heaven and earth. And the first thing that should do in our lives is this. It should banish any thought that we have that an event in our life is simply the operation of fortune. You have not been lucky. You have not been unlucky. I want you to think this morning of God's control as a hard stone wall. The Bible tells us when someone we know suffers, we are to go sit with them and we are to weep as they weep. However, as many of us know, there are times when things happen we don't understand. And there are questions that we cannot find the answers to. And that might mean we have to go make a visit to that hard stone wall. And be reminded that the good Heavenly Father does things by the counsel of His own will. But it should also put us in our place. Think of parenting. We have several couples getting ready to be married. Perhaps they're thinking about having kids, and they probably have the thought, what if I'm not a good parent? Any parent currently with kids has had that thought. Today, I was not a good parent. Anybody who has grown up kids wonders to themselves, what if I wasn't a good parent? And thoughts like that, they bring fear, they bring discouragement, they bring regret. The fact that God is Lord of heaven and earth means that God can use all of my parenting successes and he can use all of my failures as he effectively secures the interest of his glory. He can do that with our success and failures as a spouse, as a child, as a friend. It means I can pray for somebody, I can talk with somebody, I can make decisions without anxiety because I know nothing prevents the accomplishment of his purposes. So I can rest because God is my Father, because my Father is Lord of heaven and earth. Number two, my Father is Lord of knowledge and wisdom. I want you to look with me at the rest of verse 25. Thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and has revealed them unto babes. The first thing we have to do here is identify what these things are. Of course, they are the things he was rebuking the others for. The failure to hear what Jesus says, to see what he has done, and the refusal to believe. So look again. Jesus is saying, thank you, Father. For hiding the understanding of these things from one group and revealing them to another. Now, there's a lot of Old Testament pictures we could run to here. But the one that came to my mind was the picture of Nebuchadnezzar. You might remember the story. He's walking along showing some visitors all of his great riches. And God strikes him and he thinks himself a cow. And for a few years, that's what he is. Or that's what he thinks. Until one day God reveals what is true. And Nebuchadnezzar is humbled. Or you think of Jonah. Jonah didn't like going to Nineveh because he, as he tells God, I was sure you were going to reveal yourself to them. And that's what he did. But just a few generations later, the Ninevites didn't listen. And judgment came. 
And so you see the text, God, our Father, is not revealing things or giving understanding to the wise and prudent, but to babes. I want you to understand the comparison there. It's not a comparison between a group that has the PhD and a group that barely knows how to talk. He's not saying God saves the idiot. The comparison is in self-care. You see, one person might think themselves secure because they have smart locks and a gun under their bed and perhaps even motion-censored lasers outside their door. There's that kind of person. And then there's the child who thinks themselves safer in mom and dad's bed than their own when there's a thunderstorm. Let me ask you a question. What do you think God wants from you? What if I told you that instead of knowing the political situation of our nation, God would rather you learn the name of trees? To know the kind of trees that live around here. Is that offensive? I remember talking to some young people in our church a while back. They'd partaken in a 4-H competition where they had to identify certain types of grass. What if I told you that in the age of the Internet and Google and 24-hour news, God would say to you, spend some time on your hands and knees identifying grass. Does that offend you? There is a great mystery as to why God opens the eyes of some and not others. He gives us little hints, though. For example, in James, we're told that God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. And so at least one of the reasons these people didn't believe is because they thought themselves to be big shots. And God wasn't looking for big shots. Or you can think of it this way. Jesus is saying, I thank you, Father, for blinding the big shots and opening the eyes of people who have to be nursed all along the way. Have you ever considered that the reason God was drawn to save you is because of your struggles, your failures, your shortcomings? That perhaps it would mean that your struggles and your failures and your sins might show you to be exactly the kind of person on which he would like to show mercy. Ever troubled you don't seem like you measure up? Consider when you feel that way that maybe you're using your measures instead of his. You see, left to ourselves, we will only think of God as being like us, but he isn't. His thoughts are much higher. Because he is the Lord of wisdom and knowledge. Number three, my Father is the Lord of goodness and grace. We come now to this last phrase, verse 26, even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. Even so, there is the equivalent of an amen. God has chosen to open the eyes of babes, close the eyes of big shots, amen. God wants to choose the people who struggle and fail and are weak and limited, not the strong and the smart and the mighty, and we say Amen. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The rest of the phrase there is an explanation. Why does God do this? Because it is good in his sight. Think of the creation account. God created, God said, this is good. He looked at man alone and said, that's not good. The point being that God decides what is good 
And whatever God says is good is good because he has decided it. He has no counselor. No vote is taken. He takes no consideration about the rest of what the, how the rest of creation feels. But consider the context. That would mean that God saving a person, given the ability to see, hear, understand the good news, is because of the good of God's own determination. Or let me say it another way. Every Christian is a Christian because God has declared it to be good that they're a Christian. They are not a Christian because of any value they bring. They are not a Christian because they have earned it. God's goodness towards them, God's declaration that you are good in his sight is purely a matter of merciful grace. It's why Matthew was a disciple and not some other immoral tax collector. Only because God found it to be good. Why do you think of a moment in the Gospels? You might remember Jesus has done a number of miracles and leaves. Not long after, this huge crowd begins to travel around, trying to figure out where he's gone. They eventually find him. And the Bible says he looked at them with compassion, for they were sheep without a shepherd. But we're also told he knew why they were there. They were there because they wanted to be healed. They were there because they wanted to be fed. Their motivations were all wrong. But he doesn't look at them and think, boy, don't these people get it? No, the text says he saw them and had compassion. This is a principle we need to spend some time on. I know that we talk about the goodness and grace of God, but I also know that we have seasons we struggle with it. But both the Old Testament and the New Testament affirm the reality that it is far more natural for God to dispense his merciful grace. It is far more natural for him to do that than to dispense his righteous wrath. The old preachers used to say that the wrath of God was the strange work. It's the thing that is out of place with what God tells us about himself. It doesn't mean God doesn't pour out his wrath. He certainly does. That's just to say that God's wrath is not who he is at his heart. And that means for you that your salvation was never about what good was in you. That God's grace came to you because of your faith in Christ for reasons outside of you. God's goodness towards you through faith in Christ is a reason in himself for the praise of his glorious grace. That means your acceptability before God does not go up and down as you do well and as you struggle. It doesn't even go up and down when you feel like it's going up and down. You see how God sees and feels about you after you put your faith in Christ does not move. Not an inch. You are acceptable. Period. Because he is the God of goodness and grace. Rich in mercy. It's who he is. So Jesus' condemnation of Chorazan, Bethsaida, and Capernaum his condemnation was, was because their belief that they were captains of their ship, their belief that they were the big shots, was what was keeping them from hearing and understanding what they saw. As one theologian says it, if you have pride as your mother, you don't have God as your father. But if you're a Christian this morning, God is your father. 
That means you can be untroubled in your soul because your Father is the Master of all creation, Lord of heaven and earth. His sovereignty extends both over what you do and do not control. It means you can be untroubled because your Heavenly Father is the Lord of knowledge and wisdom. He has passed over the big shots. He has looked for the babe. And that means that he he looks at me and all of my shortcomings and failures and he embraces me with them. Christian, God is your father and that means your father is the Lord of goodness and grace. You can be untroubled in your soul. You can have rest because your faith in Christ, you will always be pleasing in his sight. God saved you. He saw it and declared it to be good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these wonderful truths. I pray we take them to heart. I pray by them, Father, we would enter your rest. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.